0: Guys, welcome back to the Forking Wellness Podcast. My name is Barry Strickoff, registered dietitian.
1: And I'm Sophie Bertrand, registered nutritionist, and we are the authors of the Forking Wellness book and obviously the Forking Wellness Podcast.
0: Each week we sit down and we discuss all things health and wellness from debunking diet myths to nutrition information, lifestyle factors, etc.
1: Stick with us while we try and work out what the Fork Wellness really is.
0: I don't even know what we do.
1: So this week's Walking Wellness episode is sponsored by Nine Mills from Anarchy, who are a vegetable stock brand that make their products with actual vegetables.
0: They have over 75% vegetables, which is 10 times more than most available, and they have half the salt of most of the available veg stocks on the market.
1: They are palm oil-free, gluten-free, sugar-free, organic, and vegan.
0: Each jar makes 14 portions, so that's 7 liters of vegetable stock, which is a lot. <laughs>
1: And they are so easy to add to so many different meals. I love using them for my meals that I use for batch cooking, like soups and stews and curries.
0: Same. This is definitely going into my weekly ramen meal. Um, so they have three amazing flavors the original veg stock, which is quite universal, a big hit of flavor, elevating everything else around it.
1: The garden herb, which is a delicious mix combining the depth of hardier cooking herbs along with freshness of softer ones
0: and my favorite is the umami the savory moorishness and lovely rich base note that makes all the best foods so good if you want to try nine meals from anarchy go to www.9mealsfromanarchy.co.uk
1: is free postage with orders of three or more jars and we will add all the details to the show notes of this episode enjoy Hi guys, welcome back to this week's Porking Wellness podcast episode. We are chatting to Sophie Marnie today, all the way from Australia, who is an accredited practicing dietitian. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Sophie. How are you going? Good. We're super happy to have you on today.
2: I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: We absolutely love talking about gut health. We've done it before, but we really wanted to bring on another perspective, another dietitian to kind of chat us through food and mood and everything gut health. So please introduce yourself. Tell us all how you kind of got into this practice.
2: Yeah, so I'm an accredited practicing dietitian and I'm based in Melbourne and I specialize in helping people improve their gut and mental health. So along with my online consulting job as a dietitian, I also work in research at the Food and Mood Center, which is part of Deakin University. And I'm working there as a dietitian on a trial looking at a specific diet for people with irritable bowel syndrome or IBS and anxiety or depression.
1: So interesting.
0: That is so interesting because... I know just from like personal experience, like my mom has such bad IBS. It's like, it's so different for everyone and the anxiety is such a trigger. So I feel like that's such like a unique and important area of research.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So there's such a strong link between the two and um, there's just not a lot of research behind it at the moment. So um, watch this space.
1: No, I feel like the next maybe five or even 10 years, we're gonna have so much research on this. Um, And I actually told my brother we were recording this episode and he was like, oh, like what is the research between gut health and mental health? And I told him about the Smiles trials and he was like, so impressed with it. And I was like, that's really only the like solid data we have right now in terms of like the research studies that have been done. But um, yeah, definitely, like you said, watch this space. And what, just for everyone listening who may, I mean, we hear the term gut health thrown around all the time. What is a healthy gut?
2: Yeah, so that's a really good question and a really good place to start as well. So gut health has become a very popular term in health blogging and food marketing. Um, But despite its popularity, there's actually no clear consensus on what uh, the term gut health actually means. So it can refer to a number of different things. So, for example, an absence of gastrointestinal symptoms or diseases, Um, It can be proper digestion and absorption of nutrients. It can also refer to the motility of your gut as well, and also the absence of undesirable gut features, so inflammation or a deficiency in certain molecules or an imbalance in the microbiome. So different people might have different opinions uh, or views on their definition of gut health, but when most people talk about gut health, it could be one or multiple of these components.
0: That's so interesting. It really is just like this really broad term that encompasses so much. And it's almost like the way you described it, it's like, it's the absence of things as opposed to almost kind of the inclusion of things, which makes it really difficult to kind of assess, I guess.
2: Absolutely. So there's not really any sort of gold standard for measuring if you have a healthy gut So you definitely don't need to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars or pounds on gut health testing um, as there's no reliable or single measure for knowing if you have good gut health. And we don't even know um, what the blueprint is for a healthy gut microbiome either. And it's likely to be quite different for everyone. And there's lots of different companies that sort of claim to provide the answers for whether or not you have a healthy gut, but there's actually no validated way to know whether you do. I guess it
1: makes it so difficult as well because literally everyone has such a unique makeup in terms of their gut bacteria so I always say as well I don't know if this is right but the reason why we find it so difficult sometimes to find cures for certain diseases is because you know our gut reacts so differently to different medications so there's never going to be maybe one thing that works for everyone does that make sense
2: yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the gut microbiome can definitely influence um, people's responses to medications and there will always be people who respond differently. Even if the uh, evidence base says that they will respond a certain way, there will mm-hmm. always be outliers in that data as well.
0: Yeah, so interesting. exactly. So when you talk about gut microbiome for people who um, might be a bit more unfamiliar with that term, like what is the actual bacteria that is living in our gut?
2: So the microbiome refers to the collection of different genomes or genetic material from all the microorganisms in the environment and the microbiota on the other hand usually refers to those specific organisms or microorganisms so bacteria fungi parasites that are found within that specific environment. So there's thousands of different bacteria that are in your in your gut so it's not really any specific one with that.
1: Awesome. And I guess let's just like dig a little bit deeper um are we born with this like do we get that from our mum when you know that she's carrying us like i'm pregnant at the moment so it's just interesting for me like will my little boy's gut microbiome be made up of like similar bacteria to me or i guess i know when he comes out he'll collect his own bacteria as well but it's just really interesting when we when we refer to everyone's being so diverse what's the balance in terms of genetic and environmental?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So it's definitely a combination. There's a genetic uh, component of your gut microbiome and a lot of it also has to do with your environment too. And there's so many different factors that can influence it so for example um how we're born um whether we were bottle or breastfed where we live um and our environment as well um our age if we live with animals um, whether we smoke and then obviously our lifestyle as well so things like our diet um which is the most modifiable factor that can influence our gut microbiome
1: that's a really good point yeah so and
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but your, your gut can change quite quickly or the gut microbiome like composition can change quite quickly based off your, your diet. So that, is that like an immediate thing? Like if you, if you, I don't know, change your diet, we can see kind of not, I don't want to say like short term results, but you can actually start to shift that um, gut population quickly. I don't know if that makes sense.
2: Absolutely. So you can change your gut bugs. Like we have evidence to say that they can change within 24 hours wow. of your diet changing. Um, but unfortunately. So yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, but unfortunately, say if you um rapidly change your diet and your gut bacteria changes with that, if you then go back to your regular diet a few days later, your gut tends to sort of shift back to where it was at its baseline. So, there is a short term component, um, but also that long term component as well.
1: Mm. That's so interesting. But I guess it's actually really good to know that if someone does maybe doubt how healthy their gut is, then they can kind of think, okay, how can I optimize this through
2: diet? Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. So, I guess that's like a great
0: segue into the next thing. Like, how does diet affect the gut and like what we eat? what does that do to our like gut health?
2: Yeah. So unfortunately it's not really down to single food. So most of the time it's more about your overall dietary pattern in the long term, and then definitely some consumption of some specific foods and nutrients and those lifestyle factors as well. And a lot of the time the gut microbiome is way too often oversimplified. And that provides yet another reason why we shouldn't really rely on these quick fixes or supplements to improve our gut m- microbiome because As you can see, diet is only just one factor within a broad range of other things that we can and can't change about our gut. So in terms of um, specific foods, what we know is that certain ways of eating is linked to a higher abundance of certain types of bacteria that have been associated with positive health benefits. And on the other hand, there's ways to eat, which has been linked to the presence of bacteria, which have been shown to have negative health effects or conditions. So some of the key dietary components to consider for optimizing your gut health, which I can go through in more detail, include getting plenty of fiber, plant-based diversity, including whole foods rather than processed foods, omega-3 fatty acids and polyphenols both seem to be quite beneficial as well so fiber to start off with it's the best fuel for our gut bacteria so often when people think of fiber we just think of like being regular but it actually has so many more wonderful functions than that and it really is a super nutrient not just for our gut health but also for our overall health and the reason why it's specifically quite important for our gut microbiome is that fiber is not broken down earlier in your gut and it actually travels down to your large intestine where your gut microbiome lives And it's broken down by that bacteria and that uh, produces important nutrients, which are known as short chain fatty acids. And these short chain fatty acids can nourish that gut barrier. They can reduce your risk of colon cancer, improve immune function and also prevent inflammation. So fiber is found in only plant-based foods so it's high in fruits vegetables whole grains legumes and nuts and some ways that you can try and include increase the amount of fiber that you're eating is to go for more whole grain or wholemeal bread um, flour pastas rice etc rather than those white processed versions leaving the skin on fruits and veg, um, having a couple high-fiber snacks each day, like fruit or whole grain crackers, hummus and nuts, that kind of thing. And even adding in high-fiber veg to soups and salads like legumes, corn, sweet potato, et cetera. I love that. Yeah. So, um, plant-based diversity as well. So that's really important. So sometimes we kind of forget that having a diversity of foods is a really key aspect of a healthy diet. And it's also really essential for our gut health as well. But unfortunately about two thirds of our diet actually only comes from about three different types of plants. So um, <laughs> it's probably me to be
1: honest, like sometimes I do, I am guilty of getting the same foods to my food shop, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Like I have to make a really conscious effort to actually choose different things and not choose the same meals when I'm doing like meal prep at the beginning of the week. So it Mm. is quite difficult because we kind of just go for what we know and what's going to be easy.
0: Yeah. Especially like recipes are like on rotation in this house. So it's like, I need to like constantly switch up like the veg I put in like a soup or I the veg say, that goes like in a stir fry. I just picking
1: a different veg every week or a different fruit every week.
0: Yeah, I think um, we actually, I don't know if you still do it too, but like we did challenge ourselves to like write down as yeah, many different plant like foods. plant foods that we got in a week just to see if we were getting like a good diversity because I think it's one of those things that we all know it's super important,
1: mm-hmm. but like
0: putting it into practice is actually so much harder than I think we all assume.
2: Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, it's really important to, as you said, just try like one new fruit or veg every week or, you know, just try one new recipe rather than starting a week and telling yourself, okay, I'm going to try five different recipes this week. That'll probably just overwhelm you because it's easiest to do what we know and what we don't have to like follow a recipe to a T kind of thing. So just focus on, okay, one new recipe or one or two new different types of plant-based foods a week. Yeah, What
1: I am quite good at is I buy those microwavable grains and I always mix up the grains that I buy so like one one week it'll be like quinoa and wild rice next it'll be like freaka and then like pearl barley or whatever yeah um but I did also read some research it was a while ago that the fiber we get from grains is actually more beneficial than the fiber we get from fruits and veg and that's not to say that we shouldn't include everything but is, is there any data there or have I just misread something <laughs>
2: I'm not sure if the exact answer to that i'm sorry
1: okay i guess it's like a
0: difference of like soluble versus insoluble fiber yeah. um so and like the, the
1: reason i was so interested in reading it is because so many people nowadays are kind of like oh low carb like can't eat too many carbs whereas actually all those different types of grains are so beneficial for our gut
2: Absolutely. I think the like the most important thing it comes back to is just getting that diversity. Um, and also with fiber as well. And there's, you know, hundreds of different types of fibers as well mm-hmm. and different types that you'll find in whole grains versus fruits versus vegetables. So it's good to get a diversity and to not just stick to like one type of grain, like only having brown rice. Um, you know, actually doing, as you said, getting the different types of grains when you go and get those um little packet ones as well. I think that's a really good way to do it because. I think whole grain diversity is a little bit harder to achieve compared to fruit and veggies because, uh, it's a little bit more time consuming to prepare.
1: Yeah. I'm yeah. All about the microwavable
0: grains. Yeah. Sam, I'm just like th- taking everything that you're saying and kind of just like applying it. And I feel like I'm in this constant battle where I'm trying really hard to help my partner eat health more healthily. Mm-hmm. And he's doing like amazing. Like if you would have yeah. known him, like four years ago, we'd be like, who is this man now eating all these veg? Um, so we're super proud of him. He's not going to be listening, but in case you are, I'm so proud of you. Um, (laughs) but at the same time, like, he's almost like, we have to introduce things like, not to say like, he's like a child, but like, we have to introduce things like one at a time. And he kind of like, now he like loves mushrooms and you know, it's, it's, it's a small steady thing of like introducing one vegetable and getting him comfortable with it. So I'm like constantly battling, like, making sure that we eat, like I can cook one meal for the two of us and like getting him like up to speed on like all the veg, but then also like not narrowing my diversity because I like everything. So I'm, I am it's just like interesting. Like when you said that I was like reflecting be like, Oh, you know what? Maybe I'm not doing as well as I think, because I also have this other thing to think about.
1: Oh, so over the years though, you've made so much progress.
0: I know, but I'm like, how many times can I do spinach and mushrooms? In the week like i probably do that like combination of like spinach mushroom onion like four times a week because like i know he'll eat it so but yeah. that's
1: still beneficial that's yeah. still very beneficial nutrient-dense foods
0: 100 but i'm just trying to think in my head like god where am i gonna get like now i need i don't know it's just like an interesting thought um that i was so, having while you were speaking
1: yeah i want to talk about as well that you know we're kind of encouraged i don't know actually know what it is in australia or if it do you do five a day there
2: We do five veggies a day and two fruits. So it's a little bit different to yours, I think, is inclusive of both.
1: Yeah, ours is kind of five a day, five fruit and veg a day. But now there's this whole thing coming out that we should be doing 30 different plant foods a week, which is inclusive of herbs, spices, nuts, beans, chickpeas, lentils, like everything. What if there's someone listening who's like, okay, actually, I do need to increase the diversity in my diet, would you say stick with the five a day or actually just drop that
2: and think about the plant foods you're eating. That's a really good question. I find that people actually respond a lot better to the diversity. I think so. Recommendation because Usually people are a little bit tired of hearing, you know, Mm -hmm. we need to eat more fruits and vegetables. We all know that we're not eating enough and that we need to eat more. But people often respond to that better when they hear, okay, you need to have more diversity. And naturally that will increase the amount of plant-based foods and fiber that you're eating anyway. So it's not that it's ignoring that rule. It just has a bit of a different focus and hopefully just gets people to also enjoy fruits and vegetables and plant-based foods a little bit more too which is really key to actually getting people to eat more is that if they're going to enjoy it then they're going to eat more of it
1: yeah, yeah. I think as well when you say five a day because it's so old school now people literally picture like an apple and orange broccoli, carrots, peas, like the typical kind of like what you grew up with fruit and bread. Whereas like you said, if you think about the diversity, there's so many more options you can get people thinking about.
0: Yeah. I also think like, um, looking at like 30 a week almost makes it sound a bit more like accessible Mm -hmm. or like feasible than like five a day, because like when things are done on like a day scale, like the time seems like the clock's running out. Whereas like a week, it feels like, um, a bit more flexible.
2: Definitely. And it can be applied to people who um, have different dietary requirements as well. So, if you're vegan or vegetarian, mm-hmm. or if you're eating meat, um, you can use that 30 different types of plant based foods a week for any of those different conditions. And we know that it doesn't necessarily um, matter which specific diet you follow. If you are getting those 30 different types of plants per week, then you still should have quite a diverse microbiome profile. So that's what the research showed in that particular study.
0: I'd love to switch more back to like the food and mood part of the conversation. Um, I actually did my master's dissertation on like gut health and inpatient anorexia. And during my um, dissertation, there was like, so, so little evidence. Um, I did a systematic review in my um, course leader at the time, who's like, you're really going to struggle for some like good studies that you can include. And I really did. There was like a lack of evidence. This was back in 2016, 17. So like the published papers then were a bit limited. Um, so I'd love to hear like what How has that changed or do we know a bit more about the link between our gut and our brain, um, especially in the research that you're doing?
2: Yeah, definitely. So the studies into mental health and diet seem to sort of start about a decade ago, and it was showing that people or populations with better quality diets had lower rates of anxiety or depression. Whereas populations with poorer quality diets had higher rates of anxiety and depression. So that's really what started the research. And it didn't matter where it was either. It was all across the world. We knew populations in Europe. Um, so in places like um, Scandinavian countries, Mediterranean countries, um, and then you know elsewhere. So in Japan as well. Um, All of those sort of traditional diets were associated with better mental health outcomes. Um, But a lot of that research was actually observational. So it's difficult to kind of tease apart whether those symptoms of depression and anxiety can cause poor eating habits um, or if poor eating habits are causing mental health issues. And I think many of us can kind of relate to that fact that, you know, we don't really make healthy choices when we're not feeling our best. So it's, you know, hard. It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? But um, recent studies have confirmed this theory that changing your diet can actually improve your mental health. So a study at the Food and Mood Center where I work, which was called the SMILES trial, was the first study in the world to show that when you improve your diet, your symptoms of depression can also improve. So the study included adults with moderate to severe symptoms of depression. And the researchers randomly allocated participants to either the diet group or the social support group, which is another proven psychological therapy. And they did this for 12 weeks and they also continued any other background therapy that they were doing as well. So whether it was medication or psychology help. And the social support comparison group was used to help tell us whether those changes in the depression scores were due to the effects of the social interaction, which is what the people in the diet group had because they were seeing a dietitian or whether it was actually due to the diet itself. And the diet group were instructed to follow a Mediterranean style diet, And what they found in the diet group was a pretty remarkable and um, beyond the expectation. So they found that almost one third of participants in the diet group had a complete remission of their symptoms from depression versus only 8% of those in the social support group. And those who had higher improvements to their diet also had better improvements to their mental health.
0: That's amazing. I mean, there's so many positive things that are coming out of this, but like, I just keep thinking like, what, what an amazing step forward for like, nutrition professionals to be like included in this multidisciplinary team um, in a really new way that we probably haven't been previously.
2: Absolutely. And in fact, with that as well, so the Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, uh, their clinical practice guidelines that they updated at the end of last year for mood disorders, they actually listed lifestyle factors, including diet as well as other things as well, like exercise and sleep and not smoking and not stressing too much. Mm -hmm. But those lifestyle factors should actually be uh, the foundation of treatment for mood disorders. So it really is is becoming more of this multidisciplinary sort of treatment approach, which is just so great to see.
1: I think that's so important to remember with anything when it comes to anything in life, because, you know, yes food like we have discussed can have this huge positive impact but it's not the only thing like you do need to be dabbling in maybe some movement um socializing i don't know sleeping well hydrating there are so many different aspects so it's not like unfortunately we can't just say yep improve your diet and then you know mental health is guaranteed improved you do need to be doing these other things alongside it but diet is such an important component
2: Definitely. And I guess what that guidelines was sort of um, recognizing is that it should really be just that foundation of, okay, even if someone is seeing a psychologist already, they should also be instituting these Mm. healthy diet principles and also sleeping well and exercising so it shouldn't necessarily replace anything, um, but it should be the foundation or the, sort of like the starting point for people who are also maybe entering treatment as well and maybe not having such severe symptoms. And you know, we know that diet alone definitely won't prevent or treat all mental illness for everyone, because there's so many different complex factors that affect our mental health, and diet is just one of those aspects. But unlike a lot of the factors that contribute to mental illness diet is something that we can change and we make Mm -hmm. decisions about it every single day. So it is something that we can really aim to optimize.
0: 100%. I totally agree with that. Um, And I think it's amazing that we now have this piece of research to encourage people to do it, but just going back to um, the study, um, has there been any further research in like before and after gut microbiome stool tests, like We know that improving your overall diet quality has improved these markers of mental health, but can we, is there a way to link it back to the gut or are we not there yet?
2: So there is definitely a growing evidence base for that, but unfortunately, most of the evidence so far has been done in animal studies. Um, So we definitely need more human studies to be done with that. With the animal studies, though, some of them have shown that uh, diet driven changes in the gut microbiome can contribute to behavioral changes in mice that are similar to symptoms of anxiety and depression. So, for example, a high fat Western style diet has resulted in unfavorable changes to the ratio of certain bacterial species in the gut, as well as increased anxiety like behavior and also decreased um, memory as well. And other studies have also shown that high calorie diets um, lead to an increase in certain types of harmful bacteria, and that's also resulted in poorer cognitive outcomes in animals. As far as the human study goes, as I said, the evidence is still quite lacking at this stage, but recently there was actually a study that showed that following a Mediterranean diet for 12 months was associated with specific microbiome changes, including an increased abundance of specific groups of bacteria that were positively linked with markers of lower inflammation and also improved cognitive function as well.
0: I love that. So we're on the right track. I'm just trying to think like long-term, do you think, um, like a gut specific, not like a gut diet, cause that looks so different in everyone, but like this kind of, um, priority on diversity of foods and getting enough fiber is going to be prescribed. Like, do you think I- that's, that's the way we're going?
2: I think for a lot of conditions, there's definitely a lot of rationale for that to be done. I mean, diet can be very therapeutic for so many different types of diseases and preventing them, but also treating them as well. And yeah, focusing on gut health definitely can have a huge impact on all of our different body systems and organs. So, I mean, I would love to see that happening or even just, you know, a referral to a dietitian along with other Mm -hmm. treatment as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's so key. Um, what about pro pre and probiotic foods Um, firstly, if you could just differentiate between the two for anyone that's not sure. And then secondly, more so the probiotic foods like kefir and um, miso, sauerkraut, kimchi. I feel like there's this big hype around them. We actually haven't got enough research. But there's a lot of anecdotal research. But if someone doesn't like all those foods, like literally my husband if he hears that anything is fermented he's like I'm not going there (laughs) so like how key is it to try and include these in our diet if we can um and yeah is there is there any research sorry I just asked you like five questions in one go there (laughs)
2: <laughs> no i think that was a really good way to put it into context with your husband as well sort of not liking uh, fermented foods and what do you do about that um so to start off with so prebiotics are certain types of fibers that you eat and they then help to nourish your gut um bacteria is definitely um quite a bit of research to say that they can be quite beneficial um so probiotics on the other hand are live bacteria and these are ingested and they can help to um, nourish your gut bacteria as well. So fermented foods um, have been around for a very long time, despite only just becoming quite popular. Mm. And they're actually in almost every culture across the world as well. So Japanese have natto, Koreans have kimchi, there's French creme fraiche and Indonesian tempeh. So in lots of different cultures across the world. So some of these components um, include probiotics and prebiotics, and they may influence our gut and mental health through influencing the gut microbiome and the gut permeability or leakiness, and also having an anti-inflammatory effect as well. So for this reason, fermented foods definitely hold a lot of promise as a dietary intervention due to their theoretical potential, but the research relating to the relevance of these fermented foods for gut and mental health is actually really quite sparse, as you mentioned, and it also has quite significant limitations in the study designs as well. So, the evidence for other ways to improve your gut health are much more widely researched and have proven and consistent health benefits. And that doesn't mean that eating fermented foods has no benefit, just that the research isn't quite there yet to back it up. So, I always recommend people to prioritize the other strategies over fermented foods, which your husband will be glad to hear. You. But I mean, if you, if someone really enjoys them, then I, I wouldn't tell them to stop having them um, because they do just increase that enjoyment of your food and increase still some plant-based variety into your diet. But I would just recommend having um, fermented foods that contain other nutrients. If you are going to have them have things like sourdough bread or yogurt or sauerkraut or kefir, because these foods actually contain other nutrients like fiber and prebiotics and a range of different vitamins and minerals versus things like kombucha, which may or may not even have still any live bacteria in it and often has added sugar with little other nutrient benefits as well. That's really interesting.
0: That's that a really is, good yeah. point. Um, yeah, that I, I mean, like I love kimchi. I eat it all the time, but I guess it's like also not even for like, the. Fr- it just tastes good to me.
2: So
1: Yeah, Yeah, like I literally have a slight obsession with kombucha, but I just love the like tangy, bitter fizziness to it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, if you really enjoy it, then absolutely there's no reason to stop having it. It's not like we know that there's no benefit. It's just that we just don't have the evidence yet to back that up. So if it also reduces the amount of alcohol that people are drinking, then Mm. absolutely that's going to be a better alternative as well.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's such a good point. in America, they sell uh, spiked kombucha. I know my dad oh, went to went to Whole Foods one time and like picked up a case of kombucha, and he came home oh, and um, didn't realize he got the one like with um, alcohol. And my mom was thrilled. <laughs> so thrilled but like it was like an honest mistake um but yeah I guess that's like where health marketing um Mm. is super interesting because uh now they can you know sell their spiked kombucha and there's almost this like perceived added health benefit um for the consumer even though we know that that actually might not be the case
2: yeah definitely I mean they're very good at tricking people aren't they yeah (laughs) the food marketing companies everything like that
1: And then what about taking probiotics? Because I am actually taking probiotics through my pregnancy because there is some research to say that it can reduce risk of things like the baby having asthma um, and allergies and eczema and things like that. But just in general, what's your take on probiotics? Because they can be quite expensive.
2: Yeah, they definitely can be. So generally speaking, if you're in good health then the evidence for taking a probiotic is actually quite limited. Um, If there is something in particular that you're aiming to manage, so as you just mentioned, preventing um, childhood allergies or asthma, those kind of things. And in some cases it may be advisable, but probiotics all do different things and have different indications. So it's really important that you're taking the right one. So some of the best evidence for taking a probiotic is in antibiotic-associated diarrhea, and there may also be a potential benefit in irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, infant allergies, and also immune health as well. So working out whether you should actually take a probiotic should involve assistance from a health professional, specifically a dietitian. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of different factors to consider as well. So is there actually any evidence behind it? Uh, The genus, the species and the strain, the dose, duration, and then how you should also take it as well. And although I do still recommend seeing a health professional or a dietitian to find out which probiotic to actually take, there is some ways that you can do your own research to find out which one may be useful. So there's a couple of websites that provide that information on which probiotics to take for different conditions. And most importantly, they actually also provide that summary of level of evidence for that probiotic based on multiple different human trials as well.
1: That's so so interesting.
0: Yeah, we yeah, we can put that, that, um, those websites in the show notes if yeah. you um, send them to us.
2: Yeah, definitely. I can send them to you. So one of them is called the US probiotic guide. And it's actually free to access, which is really great. Um, and it lists all those different requirements that I mentioned. And it also lists the probiotic brands as well. So you don't need to do too much of your own research. Oh, that's so helpful. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's only for US brands. So you could, I mean, buy those online um, if you're in the UK or Australia If you're in Australia, you can use the probiotic advisor, which is a similar version, but you do need to pay for it. Um, But if you're in the UK, I would just make a note of which probiotic is recommended and all of those different details that I mentioned. And then you would just have to do that research. But a lot of the time, um, pharmacies will actually have those probiotics listed on their website. So you can do your own research without having to go to the pharmacy and spend, you know, an hour looking at all the different labels and everything like that. So yeah, definitely without doing that proper research and just sort of grabbing any private off the shelf is, is unlikely to have much benefit and you're probably just wasting your money.
1: Yeah. So I guess, um, the more expensive that doesn't actually determine how beneficial that can be for you.
2: Definitely. If it's That's more expensive, that could just be due to the fact that they're spending more money on marketing that. I was
0: just going to say it's providing. packaging, isn't it? like yeah. a skin care as okay. well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you, you touched on something for like immunity, um, autoimmune disorders and gut health is something that I find really, really interesting. Are there certain probiotic strains to consider specific to autoimmune disease or no, the research is just like, we're not there yet.
2: It might be something to look up. It's not really my specialty area, but definitely something that you could find on either one of those websites. So if you look at, um, you can actually just type in the condition that you're searching for or, or look for it on the list and actually look up and see, okay, what level of evidence is there specifically for this condition that I'm looking at? If it's, you know, something like celiac disease or type one diabetes, that kind of thing, um, or anything to do with the thyroid Um Hashimoto's, uh, any of those autoimmune conditions, you could actually look up and see what kind of level of evidence is there for these, um, particular conditions and specific probiotics to help with it.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Um, I will look into that for purely selfish reason. Um, my dad was just diagnosed (laughs) with an autoimmune disorder. So we're like trying to figure out like what's the next course of treatment, but like, it's such an under-researched area of nutrition.
1: This episode Mm. has made me very impatient for the research that is still to come (laughs) because I know there's so much of it to come out. Um, But like you mentioned, we're still in such early stages. Um, But just to finish off, what are some of the long-term benefits of having or maintaining a healthy gut?
2: Yeah, so I think a lot of that interest in the gut microbiome has just grown enormously in popularity as there is so much of that new research just really linking the gut microbiome to every system in our body and every organ and disruptions to our gut microbiome can actually lead to specific diseases. And many of these arise from either a loss of certain bacteria or an imbalance of a healthy microbiome. So for example, the microbiome has been linked to the development of type two diabetes and metabolic syndrome. It also, also influences our immune health, nervous system, our skin, heart health, metabolism, and of course our our (laughs) gastrointestinal system. Yeah. So literally everything. And um, yeah, so nourishing your gut can really influence uh, your health, not just in the short term, but also prevent specific diseases and cancers in the long term as well. Mm. And most of the research so far has been in an animal study so the exact mechanisms behind how this happens are still being sort of drawn out but there's um, many different pathways as to how they think the microbiome actually is linked up to these different systems in our body So, for example, some of the ways that it does this is that um, beneficial compounds called short chain fatty acids that I mentioned before that are produced from the breakdown of fiber um, can positively influence the rest of our body because these can actually cross into our bloodstream from the gut and can travel throughout our body. And as well as that, the microbiota also produces compounds that supports the gut lining and ensures that its contents within the intestines are contained. But disruption to this barrier can actually cause leakiness um, of these micro- microbes and their byproducts that can actually cross into the bloodstream, and they can contribute to inflammation as well, which can influence the rest of our body.
0: It's so amazing, the power say,
1: of that. It's so interesting.
0: Yeah and something you mentioned just going back to like really early in the episode you mentioned like the different areas which show like um higher levels of like mood and they follow me- like um more diverse um diets you mentioned like japan and italy and mm. maybe in nordic country and like those are blue zones right so they are like populations that tend to have lower disease risk and they mm. are like higher longevity rates and i find it really interesting when you start to look into their actual diet there's like a lot of loopholes in some current like um I don't know, public health measures where like, they don't actually have, um, you know, their, their saturated fat intake might be higher than other populations, yet they have really low risk of cardiovascular mm. disease. And all I keep thinking is like, what's the role of the gut? What's the role of the gut? Um, and so like everything that you just said, it just like brings me back to that of um, populations with really diverse gut bacteria have a lot of other long-term positive health outcomes.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And those blue zones across the world, they have, even though they're different culturally and their diets are still, you know, quite different. There's a lot of consistencies with those diets in the blue zones as well. And all of those um, consistencies are also optimal for our gut health as well. So focusing mostly on plant-based foods not having a lot of ultra processed foods not having too much alcohol um getting in plenty of fiber but then not just the diet side of things but also how they live too and they don't have a lot of stress and they probably sleep more than what you know we do in western populations and you know they exercise or do incidental movement and so all of those things definitely affect our gut health as well
1: I was, gonna, I was just about to say we could just sit here for hours going through like the links between stress, sleep, movement, like there's so many different things like it all comes back to the gut right it's just plays such an instrumental role in our health.
2: Definitely, yes, such a big role in influencing all of it,
1: unfortunately. (laughs) There's more more episodes to come. Yeah, exactly.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, all the way from Australia. Um, We really appreciate it. This is a topic that we love to talk about, um, and we were so happy to have this conversation with you. Where can everyone find you if they want to learn more about what you do or follow along um, on your journey?
2: Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram. So I'm at listen to the dietitian and dietitian um, with two T's in Australia. And also I think the UK as well. So you can find me on Instagram there, or you can find me on LinkedIn or even on Facebook. You can search for Sophie Marnie dietitian um, or my website. You can head to um, sophiemarnie.com.au.
1: Amazing. We'll put all of that in the show notes so people can find you easily. And please do keep us updated if any more groundbreaking research comes out of the Food and Mood Centre.
2: Absolutely. I will. I think there'll be lots of new things coming out in the next few years, which is really exciting. Amazing. So thank thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah,
1: of course. Thank you so much. It's been so interesting chatting with you and we really appreciate your time. No problem. Bye. Thank you guys so much for
0: listening to this week's episode of the Forking Wellness Podcast. As always, please rate, review, and
1: subscribe. And share with your friends if you love this episode. It really does help us get seen in the chart. You can now also order our Forking Wellness book anywhere
0: books are sold. Order it on Amazon Prime for next day delivery.
1: And Barnes & Noble in America. And if you love the book, we would so appreciate a review on Amazon. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and we really hope you enjoy it. We'll speak to you guys next week. Bye.